Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, uh, welcome back to the show. Today we have coming to you from Southern California at Pepperdine's Harbor podcast with some of my closest friends in the world. We have the Joshes, Josh Graves from Nashville, Tennessee, Josh Ross from Memphis, and two preachers from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Rick Atchley and Chris Seidman. Hope you enjoy this podcast. And let me tell you about our friends first. Telos. Now, Telos forms communities of peacemakers to help heal seemingly intractable conflict. Join one of the transformational pilgrimages to either Israel-Palestine or the American South to see the world with a different lens and understand what it means to be a peacemaker in these divisive times. Visit Telos Group, that's T-E-L-O-S, group.org to contact them and learn how they can help guide your church community in the discipleship of peacemaking. Now, you can also check out the podcast episode from a few months ago when I actually was on one of these transformational pilgrimages to Israel-Palestine with Todd Detheridge, and uh, we also did a second podcast uh, with with other people, which you should listen to as well. Anyway, uh, go check those out and uh, learn more about Telos. Great organization, really helpful, um, helpful group to help seemingly impossible conflicts uh, have uh, have peace. So check them out and also check out this conversation. First of two podcasts from Pepperdine's Harbor this year. Here we go. And here's Chris Seaman just showing off his ridiculously good voice. It's just, it's kind of annoying how good it is. So here The it line, 760 AM. All your questions answered in the next 30 seconds. And why, did can, you, why did you even give him a mic? And then why, we can talk quieter why, like this. Why can't you make my voice sound like Caleb? There are some filters that we can put like on this, but I think that's a, a God filter that boy. the rest of us were not given. He repented 12 times. No, go ahead. Well, welcome back to the show, friends. Uh, we've got five people on the podcast today, and uh, we've got two Joshes, one Chris and a Rick. Uh, Rick Ashley, returning to the show. Uh, for the second time, Rick Ashley, the, the hero, in a lot of ways, the godfather of preaching in the Church of Christ, the man behind the... He's biggest... outlasted all his contemporaries. <laughs> have you had to pick them off one at a time? <laughs> I have been doing it a long time. <laughs> okay, and then we have uh, Josh Graves. Good morning. Josh Ross, who he's kind of on the podcast, but he feels like he's going to do like just other stuff during the podcast. <laughs> and then uh, for the first time... Mr. Chris Seidman. First time? First time. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> yeah. And that's his real voice. <laughs> I know. That, that's very offensive that your voice is that good. Do you feel like you need to kind of do something for the rest of us since your voice is so much better than everyone else's? Not right now. Not right now? Does the show already need to be saved? I don't... <laughs> hey, but I didn't know until Seedman's uh, Easter sermon that you actually had an event in your life where you lost your voice. Yes. And I thought you may, may never have it again. Yeah, I was... And then it came back like, what did you sound like before your vocal cords? I forget what happened to you. Well, I, I, it was uh, my senior year in football. I took an elbow to my Adam's apple. And it fractured my oh. pharynx and lacerated my vocal cords, and they bled for a week. And I didn't speak for more than 40 days, and we were with specialists. I walked around with a, a pencil and a legal pad, basically, to communicate. That's some people's dream, that I wouldn't speak for more than 40 <laughs> days. But we met with specialists, and uh, the specialist told my mother there was a 75% chance I'd never speak beyond a whisper again if my voice came back at all. 
but it came back gradually that fall. And when it came back, it came back an octave lower, they say, because of all the scar tissue on the vocal cords. And that's why it sounds the way it it does. I have never heard that story before. All right, I'll throw an elbow at your throat, Josh. And <laughs> we'll see if we can make yes. it an octave lower. So that says something about our friendship. Because you sent that sermon to everybody, and apparently, <laughs> apparently, I'm the only one that, that took the time to read it. Oh, that's right, you it's didn't hear that. My, it's still yes. in my inbox. It's still in my yeah. inbox. I haven't read that. One. I got an elbow one time playing football, but my voice went higher. <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding. Okay, uh, one of the things that has not been passed down to the younger generation of preachers is the love of golf that uh, Chris and Rick have. Uh, how many Tiger Woods back from the grave metaphors have you guys used in the last two weeks of preaching? Well, uh, I did have to reference it in, <laughs> in my message, How Could You Not, a couple of weeks ago. So only once, though, probably because people would expect us to reference yeah. his uh, comeback, so to speak. What is the greatest comeback, yeah. Did you wear a red I thought you were going to say no. his resurrection. Yeah. <laughs> I, I stopped you short of that. that. Yes. <laughs> I thought we'd save uh, the follow-up emails for things we might say later. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I think I'm actually going to use my first golf metaphor uh, later this summer at Westover after almost three, it's almost four years and I'll use my first golf metaphor. I feel like that means I'm not a real preacher if I'm only using one for four years. Is that right, Rick? You know, uh, I... And I'm serious, I really do use a lot of sports metaphors in my sermons, and I really do that intentionally because uh, I'm trying to connect to men. I think drawing men into preaching is harder than drawing women in, and so I do that on purpose. I I don't use as many metaphors from sports that are individualist, more team metaphors, Uh, and uh, so I don't use golf metaphors as often, Uh, and I'm not a Tiger fan, so I don't ever use Tiger. Okay. Okay, you you don't use individual for what reason? I I tend to uh, well, frankly, a lot of the individual sports like golf or tennis require some level of money to play, hmm. and so I have a fewer percentage of people that have actually participated in those sports. And uh, also, I think a lot of times uh, when you use a metaphor from football, from basketball. Uh, even if people haven't played those sports, they have played sports where teamwork, where uh, sportsmanship, where having the same goal, still the, that idea connects. You know what's interesting, though, is, I mean, when I mentioned Tiger in that regard, it's amazing how many people broke out in applause. And I'll just say this. I'm mindful of how fickle people are uh, these days. You know, 10 years ago, people loved to celebrate his fall from the top. You know, hmm. it's a... It's a culture of Schadenfreude, well, and he he wasn't. And, the, he's not the easiest person to like. No, even but before his fall, right? That's so true. There were some people but, who were kind of on. But notice, we live so. in a culture, I think, that enjoys that Absolutely. takes Schadenfreude or takes pleasure out of other people's misfortune or falls from grace, regardless of who they are. But what's so wild to me is is all the people that were applauding, and I just mentioned it like in a one line joke. All the people that were applauding his comeback that were also. Uh, I think enjoying his downfall, and I'd put journalists in there too, nine, mm-hmm. ten years ago. Now they're celebrating his comeback. It just goes to show you that as, as much into schadenfreude as everybody is, there's even a deeper thing of people love a comeback story. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the, 
I think the redemptive nature is in our bones because of the image that we're created in. But yeah. it is interesting to see how many people are celebrating his comeback, and they can't help it. And these are some of the same people that were, I think, finding pleasure in his downfall. So let's, for the, let's go back. On. For the non-German-speaking Delegation of yes. my audience. <laughs> Shot in Thank you. That's a German word for there are more kids who grew up at the branch who could afford to play golf <laughs> yeah. as opposed to at the hills. I, it, I believe it's just finding pleasure in another's misfortune. Yeah. This is, this is how I've heard it. I want to go back to the sports and preaching thing. I think this is really interesting. This is fresh for me. I get a review from my elder board every year, and most of the time it's a very affirming encouraging experience but is this last brag? year usually everyone says i'm great no no i mean the, just the conversation yeah. is an affirming conversation but they, they did challenge me this last year of uh, that maybe i use too many sports analogies hmm. which i said is that possible hmm. so i feel a little bit vindicated right now in this moment no i'm just kidding but their their point was um that it can further isolate some people who don't feel connected to sports because sports is part of American culture. But I had not thought about what Rick said, and that is we all know that most churches have more women than men, and the men that do come come less often. Mm -hmm. And I have had several men who have said, it makes you seem like a real guy. And and what they're saying is like, you know, the things that get them going – they can't really control that necessarily. Like that's the culture they're born into. So that's a connection point. Do you think church now uh, is less accessible for men than it was decades before? I'm assuming that the uh, the higher increase of women to men. First of all, do you think that has changed in the last twenty, thirty years? Do you think it's more, or has it always been that way, where it's been more um, women are making up more of the congregation than men, or they're coming more often? I'll defer to the ones who have been doing this longer than I have. Okay, Rick, I'm going to go to you on this one. Well, I, I can't speak to two or three generations ago, but in, in the 40 years I've been preaching, the, the women-to-men ratio in most uh, evangelical churches is about 60 to 40, if not higher. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, the book Why Men Hate Going to Church was an eye-opener to me about so much of what we do in church really is almost intrinsically uh, uh, uncomfortable to men. Yep. Uh, the music we sing, I just want to lay in Jesus' breast and I just want him to hold me tight. <laughs> uh, that doesn't connect to most guys. Lay in Jesus' breast? Which song is that? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the... And think about it. The most... Heaven meets earth with a sloppy, wet kiss. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the uh, most men don't read nearly as much as women. They don't talk as much as women. And most men, when they come to church here, you need to pray more and read that Bible every day. So we set them up to feel like fails mm-hmm. uh, before we even get very far into uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So, yeah, I do think most churches even are completely unaware. I try, for example, with my worship team to just look at the lyrics of songs and say, let's don't do that song. That, that is not a song that's going to uh, relate to a guy. Let's sing songs. I want a church where the kids see the dad singing the song. Mom will always sing, but I want dad to sing. And so I, I do think about things like that. I do think, uh, you know, uh, for a lot of men that grew up in certain parts of our country, uh, they, were, they were right or wrong perceived that uh, uh, celibacy was a sign of higher spirituality. Uh, so I don't read much. 
I don't like to talk much, and I do like to have sex. I'll never be a good Christian. And men don't like to do anything they think they're going to fail at. And so we set up church a lot of times in such a way that men feel like before they even start, I'll never be good at this. Okay, so you're thinking about this by analyzing the lyrics of songs, sports metaphors. What are other things that you think make it more accessible to men? Um, I think, for example, uh, a lot of times when I think about what's my takeaway in a sermon, I want to ask myself, is that something a guy would want to gravitate to? Uh, 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 where he feels like I can use something that I have a skill at, something that I feel like I'm good at, and, and something that would be a win for me. In other words, am I, am I presenting to men a way to follow Jesus that is going to be a win for them, or mm-hmm. is it going to be a fail for them? And, and I, so those are things I do ask myself con- intentionally. And uh, I, I, I'm pretty unapologetic about that. I mean, the literature is pretty... Uh, overwhelming, and we've even tracked it at our church. We, we, when we baptize a woman, but not the father, uh, there's a, a twenty to thirty percent chance we'll reach the whole family. When we baptize the father, there's a seventy something percent chance we'll reach the whole family. Mm-hmm. And so we 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 recognize that, and uh, and so yeah, I use sports metaphors. I'm not a hunter or a f- fisher, so I'm not going to talk about how I went out there and skinned a deer. <laughs> But I will talk about running. I will talk about playing golf. I will talk about my very few moments on the basketball court. Mm-hmm. And I'll use sports metaphors often as a way to make me feel uh, uh, flawed and, and struggling yeah. just like them. Because not many of my sports memories are me being the hero of the story. Hmm. I think I was spending time with a man named Don Wilson who planted a church in Phoenix called Christ Church of the Valley in 1986 out of his apartment. If you talk to Don, he's almost like talking to a coach. He has such a heart for reaching men. And uh, he largely, his, how he went about things reaching the community of Phoenix was really thinking more in terms of attempting to reach men in Phoenix. And mm-hmm. it's been quite a story what's happened at CCV since 1986. Um, it's an incredibly evangelistic church, a very large church today. But Don told me very early on he was trying to, in every message, share at least one takeaway that would let the men in the community and the church know you can do this. It's possible to do whatever it is I'm talking about and to present a win that's an application from the message. And that's largely what he worked on for 35 years. And that even sounds like a coach, just the language of you can do this, this is a win for you. I mean, and that's right. many of us had such positive formational experiences by coaches early on in life yes. that help us. And so having that in the religious setting makes a whole lot of sense. I was going to say this conversation is a great example of why <clears throat> with social media today and a lot of the rhetoric that exists in politics and churches, it's, and this is kind of Richard Rohr's big deal about these false dichotomies of we've seen the rise of feminism and the, um, response of the church and some of it's been beautiful and really good and and quite frankly it's evangelical churches catching up to charismatic mm-hmm. churches in terms of mm-hmm. women using their gifts right that's that's actually what's really happening mm-hmm. in, in a lot of conservative churches but this conversation's i think really important because one of the i think uh less helpful responses to the uh feminist movement is the, the idea that we have to choose between empowering our men and our women and that, what i love what rick's saying is we're going to empower everybody and we're going to be strategic about how we're empowering this group that we've always just assumed Mm -hmm. is going to show up because they're not. 
and they're not engaged. And I think the loving thing to do in our roles, and obviously we're an all-male circle here of male preachers, but um, is to think very lovingly and graciously about the fact that the gospel, the way I read it, doesn't ask us to pick between men and women. Mm-hmm. And that's what we, that's what is being asked for culturally right now is you're, it's almost like, are you either on the women's team and their, wear their jerseys or are you on the men's team and wear their jerseys? And what Rick's saying that is just so dead laser focused is, um, we have these subgroups within our church and we can divide those along many lines. But if you're not intentionally thinking about this other part of your population, then you are setting up this disaster of what we've seen in a lot of churches. Mm -hmm. So I I love that we can rise above the dichotomies and include everybody in that. One of the things that's that's striking to me about this conversation is there's often a concept that's articulated that the people that you want in your congregation must be reflected on the stage. And so if you want someone to say that you're welcome to have someone in leadership, someone in a prominent position that looks in, in is a similar place or ethnicity or, uh, or in this case, gender. And so we've typically, in our, in our tribe, it's been all male leadership, and, but the issue is not getting more women in, it's getting more men in. And so there's a peculiar tension of the reality and then what I've been told about if, if you want to have people feel more welcome, let them be represented, but men have been completely represented mm-hmm. uh, in the churches of Christ. And so I'm trying to figure out how, how do those two things go together? Well, I think some of it is uh, what Rick was talking about in terms of your use of language. I think that's exactly right. You need some representation up front when the body is gathered. Uh, but it's also so much more than that. You know, nothing affected my thinking more than, to be honest with you, pulling men together from my community outside of a, a weekend service and taking 30 or 40 men through the Gospels that I had met in my community over time um, at from the local gym and the local high school. And mm-hmm. most of these guys didn't go to church. But to hear, I learned a lot about their view of church by listening to them as we've walked through the Gospels. So say, say more about that. What What is, in, in Dallas, Texas, what do those men think when you're at the health club at 6 a.m. Well, on Thursday morning? What do they think about the church? Well, part of what they feel like is, it is it's interesting, they have become educated that the church is a place for you to lean upon people. It's a place that's confessional. It's a place where there's transparency. And that's sometimes what keeps some of them away. Um, and then... Hmm. They also, uh, at, at times, um, also are stuck in some old, some of them are that, they're afraid, man, if I get serious about church, people are going to really come to know me. And once they come to know me, they're not going to really like me. Hmm. That's where some of that is. And then, to be honest with you, a lot of them think the church is for soft people, so to speak. That's the other side of it. That We use words like transparency and intimacy, and we think... Those are buzzwords that people want, um, and that's not always the case, you know. Um, And so, but nothing was more informative to me than listening to these men in this regard, Um, and yet they're very obviously searching for something. They do feel like that Mother's Days at churches celebrate the wonders of mom, and Father's Days are a time when I'm going to show up and get beat up on. Yeah. Kind of yep. the whole idea of men need to do better. Yeah, to step up, you know, man up, do the right, right thing. And well, and I think there is a place for talking about that, but it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, 2 Corinthians 7. 
Mm-hmm. It's the kindness of God that leads to change. And I think there are times in some ways we need to find a way, a kind thing to do is to let people know it's possible to live into this and lean into this. This can be done. There is hope. Let me mm-hmm. introduce you to some other dads or husbands that like to play pickup basketball, but that are making improvements. That reminds me of what I learned almost 20 years ago of someone in my family really close who went through a horrible divorce. And it was like one of the few times I knew that God was speaking to me. The member of our family who had kind of gone off and done his own thing, it was because all the male relationships in his life were sour. Mm. The greatest indicator of someone's vitality with their wife or their kids is not even necessarily in that dynamic. It's the men that are speaking into his life. Well, that's a great point. I, I heard Tommy Nelson say back when I was in college that if you had two guys, and the first guy, his situation is great marriage, terrible friends, and the other is terrible marriage, great friends. The one he would assume is more likely to have an affair is the guy with the good marriage but no friends. Wow. It's the same point that you're making. Mm-hmm. Stuck with yep, me. that's right. And, and to that end, you know, we started by talking about Tiger and sports metaphors, and what I would argue is not so much that you need to use more sports metaphors. I just say that as I think about my preaching, I want to reach all the people in my church. I certainly don't want to dismiss the women. Yeah. But as I think about what resonates with men, what seems to engage men and cause them to want to take a next step, it's, it's when I call them to, to courage and when I call them to fight for something that's worthwhile. Sports metaphors are often just a way to highlight those values but it's those particular values be courageous and and fight for something that's worthwhile and worthy and is and and for someone who maybe can't fight for themselves those are the kinds of values that seem to engage men to say i want to i want to stand up and do that and so that, that's the power which of i think that's why for. paul did occasionally dip into the sports metaphor because mm-hmm. he was calling people to be cur- courageous in the midst of their suffering so yep. he deferred to what he knew Running yeah. the race. And so part of what, in, in some ways, the, who, who's your guy in Phoenix? Wilson? Don Wilson? Don Wilson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, he's functioning as a coach. And he's telling people, you can do this. Keep going. I've, mm-hmm. now I've developed this. And I don't know if it's good or not. But it's what I've worked with. That I think every time you preach, you wear four hats. And first one is Coach Taylor, the football coach, who says, rah, rah, you can do this. We all need to hear that. I think the second one is your professor who's kind of, here, let me explain to you what's happening 2,000 years ago in the text. The third one is the Dr. Phil saying, here's some practical steps that you can do to fix your life. This is that cognitive behavioral stuff. And then uh, the fourth one is the ministainer, which is a ripoff from the Friends, where uh, Joey says, I'm not just a minister, I'm also an entertainer, I'm a ministainer. And this is the part where, like, you know, Stephen, I've read enough of your sermons and I've ripped enough of them off that you always have a great joke to start with and you're performing it you're making it engaging jesus didn't just say i wonder where he learned that from <laughs> yeah, <I don't> know. <laughs> yeah jeff Walling. yeah jeff will put it on that jeff so as you're preaching you're thinking I, I need to lean into this coach role especially for for guys do you think that is shi- I, I, do you think that has shifted in the last 20 years that you've you've decided i feel like i need to do more of this or do you think this is something you're just um becoming more aware of that's always been there um, I, I do think I have been more intentional in the last 20 years about uh, recognizing that um, men and women uh, often resonate with different parts of my sermon and, and making sure I'm trying to feed the whole church and not just part of the church. I do think, too, then there's something about just the authenticity of, of the proclaimer. I, mean, I, I do love sports. 
Uh, and so I'm being real and I'm being me and I don't have to manufacture passion when I tell a great sports story. And so part of uh, part of that for me is just I'm a better preacher when I care about what I'm talking about as much as I hope you do. And so I do think that is uh, a a part of the conversation, too. And so most of my church will never play golf. But they do enjoy me telling a funny story about a total fail that happened to me on a golf course, or they enjoy clapping with me if I get a hole in one and I tell people. Well, and to your point, when you tell the failure story, that, then it actually isn't about golf. You could be talking about trying to fix the dishwasher. Right. That's about your own. Like I'm on this big stage in this big room, but I'm just a dude at 12:30 p.m. when I get my car. I'm the dude just like you are. And I think about what you know. Paul said in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians two. He said. I, I loved you so much that I not only shared with you the gospel of God, but I shared with you my life as well. Hmm. And so, you know, I think that's, whether you're talking sports metaphors or whatever out of your life, I mean, that's, that's something that ought to be seated at some level in the preaching in that way. I was, I was just thinking also on the coach mentality. I haven't thought enough that, but something that has influenced my preaching is thinking more of not just uh, what is God saying through this text and explaining the text, the professor hat, but also going down the road of, by the end of my message, I want to give people a couple of real concrete takeaways. It's not just the text. It's not just the meaning of the text. It's not just the total arc or story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's a so what. And a story I want to tell I just don't want to tell a bad story. It's easy to find bad stories for everybody to moan of where this didn't work out. Story about a hypocrite, a story about a global statistic. But I want to be able to tell a story or point to something that's positive. Let me tell you how I've seen this fleshed out recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, I I was just thinking, I'm doing the story of Zacchaeus this next week because I'm preaching through Luke and talking about him coming down out of that tree and how the, the root word for the sycamore tree is the same root word as the word for cheat and how a tax collector may have made his living uh, climbing the ladder, wow. cheating the poor. And so when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree, and he comes down out of it, that, that may have more than one meaning there. And so one of my takeaways is, hey, what do you need to come out of? That's solid. To, to receive Jesus who's calling you today. Yeah. And Really, and telling a story about somebody coming out of something. Luke will be preaching that the and second so, Sunday in July. No, I mean, but I, that's just, but really, the, the, I don't know if it's the coach mentality, but this trying to get to what's one takeaway I can give people or two in light of what I'm sharing, and what's a story I can tell where this was embodied, where this happened with somebody mm-hmm. that kind of gives them something to latch onto and to know, I can do this. I can make a step this way. Yeah. Yeah, a couple of things. This is Josh Ross here. <laughs> I'm over here writing a talk, but super engaged in what we're talking about. I use a lot of sports stories, too, but I, I found myself now a lot of times when I begin to tell a story about sports, I'll say something like, you may not care about football at all, but I think you'll like this story. But I do the same thing when I tell yeah. stories about movies, too, now. Like, I, you know, this may be a movie you never watch, mm-hmm. but I'm telling it because I, I think you're going to like something in here. So, like, stay with me. Yeah. Because what I don't want is to start telling a story about a, a football story or a basketball story, and then immediately people who don't like the NFL or football just tune me out. But I like what we're talking about, too. I mean, in the Gospel of Luke, there are times where Jesus will tell 
basically the same story two different ways or three different ways mm-hmm. where he tells a story that will capture a male audience or a female audience or a mm-hmm. well, insider audience or outside for audience men about shepherds and a coin for on the woman search for the coin he's doing men and women yeah and yeah. Stephen, what you were talking about just a minute ago i've been asked recently i've had a chance to hang out with different church staffs and and multiple times recently i've had people ask what do you think has changed the most in your preaching over the last i, I guess i've been preaching now 17 18 years and I think the thing that has changed the most is the last few years, I feel like my preaching is better and more effective because I've started ending sermons with, okay, here, here's what I want you to take home. Mm-hmm. And I think that was absent from my preaching for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know for me, and I think for, I think for most of you who had preaching courses back in college, there are a lot of things I appreciate. I, I preached, I mean, I think they've given me a tool set to pull from that helped me take seriously a text, but a lot of the sermons I preach now probably wouldn't receive good grades in a seminary mm-hmm. class, mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like they're more effective for my mm-hmm. people because yep. I'm not just trying to put together a polished sermon that people will think is a good sermon. I'm thinking about well, how are people going to take this home? And carry so so I try to end sermons now with even if I have to come back to okay right. hey, here are two things I want you to remember or put in practice in your life and I want you to reach out to me this week and let me know yeah. what difference I, it made I think that's so important what he's saying that sermon is more than art and I think sometimes we there's a little bit too much emphasis on the sermon as an art form um, in in terms of of you know a critic may see things in a piece of art that Joe Blow won't that I won't and sometimes we can be guilty of writing sermons as pieces of art for for a very narrow segment of people who frankly aren't out there and aren't asking the same questions and I I think getting to the takeaways and by takeaways i'm not talking about a self-help sermon i'm not talking about that i'm talking about you're still coming out of the text but you're pushing for a concrete application and giving people some hope for here's what this looks like to walk out uh in some ways yeah one of the things that i i had a conversation with miroslav volf a few weeks ago and he talked about the tension between the academy and the church that the academy isn't serving the church and there's not communication back and forth and i think you talk about you know seminary experience and the way that training is done for homiletics there's two different pictures of what maybe sermons are supposed to be in the academy and then there's one in the church yeah i would agree with that and and the thing is we we don't want to rob the the gospel and and the word of God with of its mystery. We don't want to turn it into just a formulaic. Here's three steps to having a better. You know, we don't want to do that. And yet, at the same time, I think we need to realize who who is it we're talking to. Mm-hmm. And most of the people in my church don't have a lot of N.T. Wright and Richard Rohr on their bookshelves. Mm-hmm. And 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 it, well, there was a season in the seminary where we're going to do an inductive style and we're going to give you this great question and we want you just to go home and wrestle with the mystery of this. And the average dude in my church is not coming to church for homework. He's not going to go home and wrestle with anything. What he might go home and do is actually uh, think differently or try differently about something in light of some truth that was confronted. And, And so a lot of times when we say application, we don't even mean here is a specific thing you do but here is a new way to think about what you're doing or here's a new way to to envision or to look at the situation that you're dealing with right now mm-hmm. and, and that's part of what i mean is it i i and so in some ways i see 
the coach and the doctor Phil had is a little bit of the same because a mm-hmm. good coach uh, doesn't just tell me hit the ball down the middle. A good coach is going to say, and here's something you might try when you're that will help you hit the ball down the middle. Yeah, yeah that's very important. If you talk today, like to coaches in our church, the people who do it for a living, they talk about football coaches and basketball coaches. The best coaches are also teachers. Yeah, they're not just inspiring; they're literally showing a student. Here is how you do this, right. and I think that's well, that's right. really in, that's important, and that's where discipleship and sports mm-hmm. are so related because they're primarily about what you do when you, when you're in the situation, mm-hmm. and and that's where our Jewish roots help us because it's primarily about practice and mm-hmm. praxis. I was thinking about <clears throat> my oldest son Lucas when we do these drills at we have a gym at our church and we do drills all the time and different dads will come in and he can he's not the best we have a really good team he's not the best player on our team he's he's a really good player but he's the best drill kid you've ever seen Hmm. and i realized that if it's not translating into the game then i have failed him wow because he can look great doing it he could do two ball dribble when he was four years old around cones but if that doesn't translate to him being confident in the game it doesn't matter wow, how good the drill good. is. And I've thought a lot, a lot about that with preaching is you can preach a great sermon that's art, and people can even say things like, I don't know how you move from story to story and connect, or I don't know how you preach without notes. And all that is total distraction mm. and missing the whole point of, but if what happened in that 25 minutes doesn't speak to some of the most painful parts when on Monday you have the jersey on and you're in the game playing, Mm. then I've failed you as a coach. Mm -hmm. So now what I love is I'm trying to figure out with Lucas, what are the drills that actually translate to the game experience? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Yeah, and to that, because I've I've reflected on this a lot, even the last few days, and I think I even preached about it last Sunday, is that the goal of preaching is not to get people excited about trying to come back the next Sunday. (laughs) Say that again. Mm. again. Well, it's not that I want to preach this sermon so that when you leave, you're like, man, that was so good. Yeah, next week, I got to come back for this again. It's that, and I think the early church, you know, when they were at their best, they believed this, that good preaching within that worship context, you know, on a Sunday or on a weekend, I mean, it is preparing people to take Monday seriously as if eternity is on the line, mm-hmm. as if the kingdom of God is on the line. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to pivot. Let's do a couple, uh, not rapid fire, but a couple subjects I want to get to. Speaking uh, of basketball, we're going to pivot. pivot. Oh, wait, didn't you say 70% of your audience are women? So this podcast is going to go really well. Well, I think anytime you're on, it goes well, Josh. Um, okay, so speaking of the pressure to get people to come back next week, I think people maybe are feeling that more because the numbers across the board for church attendance uh, in America are continuing to drop. When and you say people are feeling more, you just mean pastors, right? You think, the, you think that's the only one? Yeah. I, I mean, church I, leaders? Oh, or church leaders, yeah. So I don't think, uh, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think everybody out there, part of the community is feeling it. You don't think so? Like, your, your member who's been there for 30 years, and he or she looks around and goes, you know, uh, I, I see a lot of other churches, and they're not as uh, full as they used to be. I'm not saying maybe the break. Well, is no, hard, I, I I think they may wonder that, but it's not a burden on them the way it might be for on the on the leaders, okay. uh, whatever the body is, because they've got a, a hundred other things going on in their life. They're sitting there thinking about how they're going to pay the orthodontic bills and 
uh, what's going to happen hmm. in, in marriage counseling That's this week. Yep. And I just I don't think they notice everything we're thinking about 70 hours a week. And they're just their heads are elsewhere at times. Huh. But I, that's just my. I, there's no question. We as leaders think about this. Yeah. People serving on the inside of church obviously think about this. Well, we're up into the right culture. I mean, we our boards that we serve. Yeah. Th- that's how they think. Tell them what the you mean by up, uh, up uh, to the right. When, when you are on an X Y act, I mean, I, I know just enough to be dangerous. But when you're looking at trends, if your finances and your money and your attendance and your life group attendance and your Bible classes and your evangelism and your baptism, if it's not up and to the right, you always have at least five or six people on your board who that's the only metric that they have yeah. to view the church. Those are also your Enneagram threes, in case you're wondering where they are. The unhealthy threes. <laughs> yes. Go, but back to what you said. I, I took you off. Let's go back to our correspondent, Luke Norsworthy. Luke. See, that's why you should be the actual broadcaster, not me. Not just because of the voice, but because of that. Um, oh, but you don't think people are, are as worried as leaders are about church attendance? Yeah, I, I don't think they are. I think they're thinking I about other things. I, I think Rick? they're burdened by other things. Well, I, I do think that um, the wise pastor is aware of the fact that church attendance seems to be in decline and asking ourselves what does that mean not just for preaching ministry but for the whole discipleship strategy of a church if the primary vehicle in the past for discipling has been to get people regularly to come on a sunday or a weekend service if that's in decline if you have a church of a thousand members and three-fourths of them are there every week uh okay you you think hey my church is 750 now you have a church of a thousand members, but instead of coming three out of four weeks, they're coming two out of four weeks. They're at the lake one week, and they got select soccer. Now you're a church of five hundred attendants, and you think, "Oh, my church is in decline." I'm not so sure your membership has declined, but what is no question in the decline frequency of attendance is frequency no of question. attendance. It has gone way down among. And so, as pastors, then, what does that mean for how do we? How does that change or affect our preaching? If I'm going to do a 12-week series on Galatians and my <laughs> most committed members are going to hear six of them. Right. Uh, what does that mean for my preaching? And then what does it mean for how we're going to disciple people if uh, we can no longer count on the primary way to engage people is that Sunday morning moment? Yeah. So I do think the wise pastor has got to be cognizant that church attendance is in decline. And what does that mean for uh, the the practices and the strategies and the priorities of our church, one of the things that we're noticing is like the Netflixization of church is that we're having to ask the question of content used to be distributed. People are going to sit down on their couch as a family. They're going to watch a show at eight o'clock from eight thirty, right. and everyone's going to sit there. And, gonna, and then you get the DVR, and then now you get streaming, and content is still being consumed, but the way it's being consumed is vastly different, and so. I wonder if like what, what the next phase of what, what churches are going to have to be doing because people still are consuming content. It's just not Sunday morning sitting in a pew. Right. I, I, I'm thinking about this a ton. Um, I think a lot of things are going to have to be recovered. What, are we, what is the importance and the value of gathering together with other people? What do you expect? A theology of presence in gathering? How is that different from consuming content by yourself in a silo? I, we're struggling with even words of what do we expect when a group of people gather in the name of Jesus, and what is it that goes on there 
that will not happen in your closet or in your living room by yourself. Um, I think those are huge, huge things because the church has ridden this wave in America of, you know, for years, hey, come and show up here for content. That's the thing that's pulling apart conferences today. Conferences used to trade on, come and hear this content. And now you can just hear, you can have the content on my phone. And so now conferences are struggling with, well, we need to think about an, an experience, what we're trying to accomplish when we're together. I feel like the, the church's communities of faith are struggling with that. I personally feel like statistics are true even for sporting events and the viewing of movies. What this thing, that this shift is, that's happening is so massive uh, across the way of how many more people are back to sports just choosing to consume that on their own terms, on their own time, as opposed to what happens when we gather together as a body. But and, and that's what Jerry Jones was saying when he built that massive TV, that the, the competition isn't NASCAR or yeah. Mark Cuban. It's, it's the flat-screen TV at home, where they can yeah. get as good of an experience there. Yeah. One thing it means for me for preaching, and it, it should have meant this already, and in some ways it, it always did, but every sermon, I don't care if it's in a series or not, every sermon needs to have a start and a finish and if that's the only sermon I heard of this whole series, I, I had the opportunity to take away something that's going to help my walk with Jesus. Yeah. I can no longer preach the, hey, that was a great start to this great question. And next week, we're going to take on part two. Yeah. You can't preach that way anymore. Every sermon yeah. has got to be a unique moment. Now, having said that, uh, what I've also learned is that if I'm in a series, like I, I just finished a six-week series on race. No one, a very small percentage of my church heard all six of those lessons in person a stunning percentage of my church have heard all six lessons and so there i I haven't figured out how to navigate all that the fact that they're not all there doesn't mean if it's engaging or important that they're not listening but i think chris has asked a good question what then is the compelling reason for being there And, and what are we missing when we're not gathering that we need to be speaking into because uh you know i live in a culture now in dallas fort worth well well we were out late last night so we're tired or the kids have uh, a one o'clock sunday game so we're just going to sleep late or if you're in dallas fort worth if they say there's going to be a dusting of snow in oklahoma <laughs> city they cancel schools in fort worth and nobody shut gets down, on the road shut down roads yeah. so so it is i think going to be uh important for us to to rather frequently communicate why we do believe there is something about the gathering that is important to the disciple-making process. Um, we, we surveyed our people at the branch four or five years ago in terms of their frequency of attendance, and we had about 700 people participate. So not, um, you know, not the whole church. Maybe you consider our core participated at the time. 700 households participated in the survey. Of these households, we knew who they were. They were givers. They, they attended rather frequently. Um, they were volunteering in some way. So these are the people who took this survey, right? Um, they were there at the branch an average of 2.3 weekends every month. Mm-hmm. You yep. know, that 2.3 weekends a month. And, that's, and, and Leadership Network says among churches in Dallas that core member households are there at their local church every 1.7 weekends a month. Yep. And so it is, it is a different day, not just in how, 
the discipling of people, which obviously has to take place outside of the, the gathering spaces, but also it's a different day just in terms of communication to where you think you've told a church 12 times this announcement of something you're doing as a church. And the truth is people may have only heard it once because they were there in person. And even when they were there, they weren't listening. And yeah. so there's huge challenges. Yeah, I mean, let me go to Rick's question and see if this generates a little discussion. I would love to hear you guys speak into this a little more, but I feel like a big thing we're missing right now is like, or maybe that we need is a recovery of sacramental theology, mm. just sacraments and the importance of sacraments. And I know that's not a word that for us has been around in our tradition much, but I mean, for me, preach, I, I can't imagine preaching outside of a movement. So outside of a local church or a vision mm. or a mission, and I also can't imagine preaching outside of a context of a carefully prayerfully thought out worship experience for people that's taking them through songs through confession to the table so it's not just a, a sermon i want people to listen to but something i want people to experience every weekend so sometimes when i hear people say we don't need to get to the building let's just have friends over and we'll sip on wine and we'll share life and and that's church and my response is we're sacraments involved and if sacraments aren't there, I don't think you can call that church. Mm-hmm. Sacraments not about good friends and fellowship, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, sharing life with people in that kind of way. So, how important do people think sacraments are? You know, that are bringing people together from different walks of life to yeah. participate in different mm-hmm. experiences that are calling us to the heart of God. Well, I, yeah, because sacraments change it from just downloading content. I'm going to hear the sermon, or I can listen to the sermon online, or I can watch it at home, to I can participate in this experience in which we all gather and experience this, the, like the presence of the sacraments, the presence of God together. I think, right. you know, I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. He said, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. It says that in 1 Corinthians 5. I always think about that in terms of gathering space. And I know you're... You're talking about a sacramental theology. I think this is, again, what what do we expect to happen when we gather? And is there a blessing, uh, a manifestation of the presence of God that's palpable when people gather in the name of Jesus um, in a way that that isn't when I'm alone viewing content? I would say the answer is yes. You know, if you look at, I'm going to talk about the charismatic end of Christendom right now. Of course you're going to talk about the Of course I am. Uh, but part of what's happening there is there is a sense of, I, I want to be there because I don't want to miss. There's margin for something unexpected may happen. Um, and, you know, the language of God showing up obviously troubles me. I know it, it troubles you in that regard, but there is there may be better ways to talking about it, but there is a sense in which when people t- of that expression or flavor of faith talk about gathering, they're not just talking about gathering for content at all. This is about, I don't want to miss what might happen there when we're gathered together in the presence. And I, I would just add to that the the culture of well our friends got together and we were doing life together and we did all that yeah but you're with people who are just like you and think just like you oh, that's, that's not church so... church is you show up with people that you might not even like that is so good that is that's so true. so true and what's so funny is the people that say that in our living rooms oh I'm with other people in community we're experiencing the presence 
It's probably the people in your living room, people that are just like you, that think just like you, because there's stress in being with people that aren't like you. It's hard. And so you want to be at home with people that don't bring stress. And I think that's so important, what you're saying there. Um, And let me add one more thing as that affects the ministry of preaching. And, And I might be way off base here, but I do believe when we are gathered together, there is an experience of the Spirit of God that even affects the way I hear the Word of God. So I can be listening to the same sermon on my podcast while I'm on a jog, or I can be hearing that sermon while I'm gathered in the assembly, and I'm seeing that sweet little lady down the the pew. She's wiping her eyes. And I'm watching that guy all tattered up who goes forward to confess and winds up in a baptistry. And I I leave, and that same sermon has an impact on me, and it has a, a longevity with me. That did not happen listening on my podcast during a job. Yeah. I think there is an anointing on the hearing of the word mm-hmm. that we miss uh, that can only be had in community. There's a, and I don't want to push the metaphor too far, but there is kind of a, a pornography of how we consume content in religious culture. There's a, I, I want to watch it happen or listen to it happen, but I don't actually want to be vulnerable yeah with people who are different than me um that's that is it's uh it's just over 10 15 years man it doesn't create vibrant disciples yeah yeah that's interesting yeah i remember hearing uh christine kane at uh, at pepperdine i guess two years ago talking about how uh different rooms call out different thing in preaching and i was like well okay if you go to 10 like what was like preaching at at pepperdine she goes oh, i was like a two or two or three and uh, so she said that I'm, I'm not saying anything. That's just her. She also thought she was doing chapel that day she, for students. She did, yeah, yeah. So and she, she walked in and was like, oh, this is, a, this is fish and chips n- at 5 o'clock. Non-traditional <laughs> chapel student. But, okay, so it calls out of the preacher like the room that you're in. But I think it also calls out of everyone who's participating in the worship service. In the same way that you're talking about, uh, that participating and seeing everyone else's involvement. And I think the, the metaphor of the important pornogratization what what is the word you came i don't have a doctorate from columbia like you do uh so i don't know how to use that word um but what that what pornography does it dehumanizes and in some ways it demystifies demystifies the the gathering when we remove it from other people okay so um do you want to talk about conflict or do you want to save that for another let's do that for a different time okay uh We'll do one thing to Ross, and now I want to ask about uh, uh, screens, preaching on screens. Yeah, one, one thing I would love for you guys to, uh, to speak into for a moment is uh, how many times in your church or outside of your church do you read things or hear things about, you know, the best, the best sermons are sermons that are lived, not that, you know, that, that they're not preached, or the, mm-hmm. the quote that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi yeah. of... Uh, preach the uh, gospel every day. Yeah, preach the gospel, yeah. and when necessary, use words. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I think words are necessary, and I know I could be accused of that because of what I do for a living in terms of accused of being biased. But I, first of all, there's some debate of, of, as to whether or not he said that. But second of all, uh, I'm just mindful of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He still showed up alongside those two cats that were processing the events that just happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus went to Moses and the prophets and used the Bible to declare the gospel about himself. Even Jesus used words. And I, I think it's a bit of an overreach. It's a sexy statement to make. It's a good for a tattoo and a bumper sticker 
to say, <laughs> hey, I, the best sermon is the sermons that are ever lived. But nobody fell down at the empty tomb and said, my sins are forgiven. They had a word. There was a word of interpretation. There was a, there was a spoken word that helped people process the meaning of the death, burial, and resurrection yeah, and of I, Jesus. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think I would argue it back from Genesis of one of the things that makes us different than any other part of creation is our unique ability as humans to create uh, avenues of expression and feeling with words. Now, animals communicate to each other. But as far as we know, they don't have the language. And language is, in the Bible, it's sacred. Yeah. I think of Philippians 2, where Paul says, hey, do everything without complaining and arguing. He's making another point. But then he says, as you hold out the word of life. Mm-hmm. And so, I, man, I, I think words are necessary. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I want to talk about screens for just a second. Now, I've preached uh, at the Hills. I've preached at Otter Creek. I've pe- preached at Sycamore View. I've, you haven't oh, yeah, you, the branch. Yeah, you've never invited me, so just thanks You're for, very strategic. Thanks, it was the Pete Holmes that. podcast that got you. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Persona Non Grata one. Uh, and so I, I've heard rumors that there's a big screen that you've got at one of your campuses. Uh, oh, I like this. I didn't plot twist. I didn't, he's putting you on the hot seat. <laughs> no, I did. But we, at Westover, we, it, you've been to Westover, mm-hmm. and there's this big screen. So every time I preach, people are staring mm-hmm. right over my forehead at me uh-huh. on a screen, even though I'm there in person. What do you think screens screens always win? Like they're, they're brighter, they're shinier, they're they're mm-hmm. prettier than than real life. And so screens are always going to win. If you're at a sports bar and grill, and of course you're at the grill section, if there's a TV on there, like you will lose the attention of someone at the table because those screens are always mm-hmm. going to win. What do you think the effect of screens in church? Do you think it's going to have an effect on how people you know experience preaching or not? Well, I. We've been at, of course, we've been multi-site for, we went multi-site in 2007. So mm-hmm. we went pretty hard and fast towards screens and pretty good technology to kind of remove the, we wanted people to almost forget them. After, and I've heard stories after, of people being at the branch and thinking you're there right. at, at a campus. And, then and a yeah. lot has been invested there on both campuses related to that. Now, and so I, I've kind of personally got a love-hate relationship because um, I don't know what it's totally doing to us. L- last night, we're watching Randy Harris preach in Firestone Fieldhouse. I'm watching the screen more than Harris because I can see his facial expressions more. Yep. Um, and I, so I feel like it served the moment and it didn't bother me. Um, so I think uh, some places aren't multi-site, but they have screens because it helps the room so you can better see the facial expressions. You know, at the Hills... The screen is very helpful because the rune is so big to being able to see Rick's facial expressions mm-hmm. when he preaches in that way. So, I mean, we live in a world of screens, and I don't know entirely what it is we're, it's doing to us. I've got larger questions about what it's doing to the shape of preaching uh, in, terms of the, uh, in terms of a sermon word being a word in a living moment by a living person in front of you. Because on any given Sunday, half of the church is watching a sermon from an earlier service, and I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And so, so I've got some questions about that mm-hmm. um, in, in that way. But I think screens can be helpful in a large venue. Yep. You'd be able to see the in the same way that a microphone can be helpful. That's a good comparison. Yeah, to date, I only have observations. I, I think uh, none of us know a generation from now what they're going to look back and say screens did to the church. But when they came to the idea of us going multi-site, uh, that was one of my concerns. And if you had told me 25 years ago 
that people would attend a church where the primary preaching moment was on a screen and the person wasn't there, I would have laughed. I would have said, no way. I'd have probably used a fancy word like preaching is too incarnational. And I would have been totally wrong. People do go to churches and they feel invested. Uh, For example, uh, we have uh, three campuses. And so on any given week, two campuses, I'm not there in person. I'm usually at one of our campuses, and we have a campus on a different part of town, and and uh, they had had live preaching for several weeks uh, of of other pastors in our church, <laughs> and so I was asking the campus pastor, "Well, how are things going at your campus?" and and it's going great, but everybody wants to know when's Pastor Rick going to be back. And I thought, what an interesting way to put that, because Pastor Rick isn't even there most of the time. But they wanted to know when was I going to be back. They really do feel like I am their pastor and that I'm feeding them and that I'm uh, a spiritual guide for them, even though I am probably only physically present for live preaching for them five or six times a year. Now, will that trend continue? I don't know. But I do know that my children grew up on screens. My children went to college and got educated by people on screens. My children have friends all over the world that they call friends that they have never been the physical presence of. And so we do have a generation that receives what they consider to be very, very important information to help them navigate their life. Technology is always just an argument about forms, right? Right. And, And the technology of the first century for Paul was the letter. Mm-hmm. So there may be an argument to that the screen functions as the letter did because Paul obviously yeah. wasn't I've heard, there. I've heard Kevin Kelly say technology is anything that was created after I was born. Hmm. Real technology <laughs> is anything you make with your mind. Paper is technology, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the like microphone, glass is technology, but it's usually de- derogatory if it comes after me. Yeah. And so it's like the old man get off my lawn kind of stuff that that often it is. Okay, uh, we're gonna wrap up. Uh, final word on someone trying to figure out. Uh, how do I get the best out of preaching? Not someone who's preaching, but someone who's going to be a part of the service, not preaching. What is a word for them on how I can best be involved and available and participate in the preaching moment? Well, there's so many things. That could be a full full podcast. So uh, the quickest answer I could give is I tell my people, I pray before every sermon, Lord, uh, give me your words to say. But then I also ask them to pray, Lord, give me ears to hear. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how much I've prepared, how much I have prayed over my sermon. uh, There is still a work of the Spirit to able to hear that sermon. So I ask them to pray every week, Lord, give me ears to hear. Mm -hmm. This is probably an area I have not done a good job. I think like our culture at Outer Creek is so kind of suburban laid back that I I don't feel like we've challenged people to be intentional with be on time. Like, oh, you get yeah. your kids to school on time. Every single day, your kids are on time for school, but you can't be on time for church. They're on time for every single sporting wow. event that you attend, yeah. but you can't get to the 9 o'clock service on Sunday morning on time. And, I, and, and you know, you lose in that message because then you just sound like you're mad or whatever. But, but I, I think what I need to do a better job of is be as intentional as you are with this as you are with these other things in your life. And it's amazing the correspondence between your intentionality and what you experience. My word would be to remember that whoever it is that is sharing that day is a crackpot. You know, <laughs> it's got cracks. And, and 
is not going to have a monopoly on the truth. There will be things they say that you disagree with. There will be things they say that don't turn out to be true. Hmm. Because, and they did the best they could working with the information they had, telling a story or a statistic in that way. And to, to realize um, that it is uh, where words are many, sin is not absent, as the proverb says. <laughs> The other day, I was thinking about this the other day, how many sermons I've written at the branch, and I, my, what my sermons average in word count. I, I, I was thinking the branch is probably set through three and a half million words from me in close to 20 years. And all of a sudden, I felt like, how much sin have they been privy to? Meaning the stuff I said motivated by ego or fear. The stuff I said that I exaggerated. Three and a half million words is a lot of margin. And it, it's for error and for sin. And it really sobered me. Um, and so I've just been thinking about, man, it really is by grace we preach. Mm. Um. It really is by, and it's by grace our people listen. Wow. Um, and uh, so that's just, I'm just, uh, the longer I'm at this, the more aware of what crackpots we all are. That's a, that's a sobering word. Boss, you got anything for us? Final thought? I mean, for my own life, what's helped me so much, probably four years now, the prayer I pray every Sunday before I preach is multiple times. And often, even with our praise team and those participating in worship, I pray over them too, is that the calling on us is not to be spectacular, it's to be faithful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the hardest Sundays for me to preach are Sundays after I hit a home run. Yep. And because I feel like I got to step up and do it again. And... um Man, God doesn't need me to be spectacular week in and week out. He needs me to be faithful. Yep. I don't need to be remembered. I want to help point people to the one who needs to be remembered in everything they do. And you know, for the for the people coming, how can I just how can we play a part in helping create an anticipation that what we do here matters, that we're a part of a greater movement, a greater story that has mm-hmm. major significance in every facet of life. And you know what? It never fails. The stuff that I feel like I've had an aha for me personally or it's impacted me, this sermon is a home run or a triple. The day after, it wasn't for anybody else, and I'm so disappointed. And then there are other times where I'm walking in there and I'm like, I did my best. I feel solid. I feel like I'm supposed to share this, but I'm not excited. I feel like it's a B. That's the one that people tend to respond to, and I'm just mindful of how little I really know for what's going to intersect and what's not. And maybe that's, we preach as much as anything by faith and not by sight. Um, yeah, when I was 21, I was preaching at the Highland Church one week. Cope was, had me step up and preach for him. It, it was an awful sermon. I mean, it felt bad in the moment. I, it was one of those you step down and you're like, I'm doing the wrong thing. Like, I need to go <laughs> do something else. And afterwards he said, hey, man, you know what we do? We aim for, we aim for singles, using a sports metaphor. He of said, course. man, in preaching, we aim for singles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes you'll get a Amen. double, sometimes you'll get a triple, sometimes you'll put one over the fence, but just try to get on base. That's a good word. Good word. Well, fellas, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Good stuff. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. 
Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.